Welcome to All Together Now. This is Eleanor Lacane. Today we'll be discussing what we can do about the war in Ukraine, including the hidden power of nonviolence to address the situation. When the Russians invaded Ukraine in February, many people expected the Russians to win in just a few days. However, the Ukrainians have been fighting bravely and even beaten back the Russians from the capital city of Kiev. Despite their military victories, the Ukrainians are experiencing terrible death and destruction at the hands of ruthless Russians. The Russian aggression has brought together the US and Europe and much of the world in support of the Ukrainian people. The US is leading allies in imposing severe sanctions on the Russians and sending Ukrainians military and humanitarian aid. But what more can be done? Are there other actions that might reduce the destruction? How might the power of nonviolence be used to alleviate suffering and deter invaders? And to what extent is nonviolence happening now and we're just not really seeing it? Our guest today is a leading expert in nonviolence. George Lakey is a recently retired professor of Swarthmore College and lifelong activist for peace and human rights. He began his direct action in the civil rights movement where he trained many civil rights activists and nonviolent actions. He's the author of 10 books, including the very important How We Win, a guide to nonviolent direct action campaigning and Viking economics, how the Scandinavians got it right and how we can too. He has a memoir coming out in November titled Dancing with History, which I can't wait to read. He writes frequently for the online publication wagingnonviolence.org. George Lakey, welcome back to All Together Now. So happy to be back with you, Eleanor. Yeah, so, you know, we're all, of course, heartsick about what's happening in Ukraine. Um, and you wrote a wonderful um, article published on wagingnonviolence.org saying that the Ukrainian people don't need to match Russia's military might to defend against invasion. So uh, that's kind of a different view than our kind of trained responses very much deal with military action by a counter-military action. Explain how else you think their Ukrainians could fight besides militarily. My departure point for this is Gandhi's view, um, because Mahatma Gandhi is probably the greatest um, practitioner of nonviolence in history so far. We'll see who comes up in the next generations, right? Maybe right. some of your listeners will be in there. But uh, Gandhi, uh, you know, because of his enormous track record and his thoughtfulness about it, is somebody who's often a departure point for me. And one, one, one day, he was very open to people coming to him and asking questions. And somebody came to him and said, look, what if somebody comes at you and they're going to attack you and you can't think of any nonviolent way to respond? And he said, well, then respond violently. And there's a little shock by some of his friends, you know, standing around Gandhi because he was so well known to be an exponent of Nabaz. And they said, whoa, uh, wait a minute, Gandhi. And he said, look, 
Um, the most important thing is to resist. And if that's all you can think of, then resist violently. However, said he, I believe in principle that there's always a nonviolent alternative. You can, if you can be creative enough in the moment to think of it. And so my approach to Ukraine, uh, th this thing is happening right now. Uh, and reading the news reports, um, and of course, sending money mm -hmm. to doctors without borders and, in order, you know, because there's such an effective gang of uh, doctors and nurses and medical people taking care of people in very war-torn situations. Um, and so I'm, I'm doing what I can about that. But I'm also taking Gandhi at his word. I'm asking myself, well, what can we learn from this? Because if others can learn from this experience, it may help us to be more creative in the future when somebody else attacks somebody. And so that's been the approach I've been taking, Eleanor, is mm -hmm. what can we learn? And I, I always feel like it's a way of honoring somebody to try to learn from their experience. Exactly right. And, you know, it's so uh, interesting to me, once I started thinking about this nonviolent approach to a very militaristic, aggressive, brutal invasion by Russia. And yet I personally feel very committed to nonviolence morally and philosophically. Mm -hmm. um, so you just wonder what can I do? But once I started thinking about it, you went, my goodness, the Ukrainians are actually employing nonviolent tactics as well as military right now. Um, you know, they're, bodily blocking convoys and tanks. Um, they're standing their ground even when warning shots are being fired and they're organizing peace rallies. They're talking to the Russian military to try and convince them they're not doing the right thing and stop it and go home. So there's already a lot there. It's just, you know, if it bleeds, it leads is the motto of the media. And it's such a vibrant, visual to see the destruction happening, that this untold story of the nonviolent action is in there. And I was hoping in this conversation with you, George, we could kind of bring some of that to the forefront of what is happening now already that is nonviolent action in the Ukrainian situation. Eleanor, one of my favorite stories is of an old woman who went up to a bunch of Russian soldiers and tried to get them to accept her gift to each one of them, which was a packet of sunflower seeds. Because what she was saying was, look, you may die here on our soil, but if you have sunflower seeds in your uniform, <laughs> out of your death will grow some life and hope. And of course they were, no, no, we don't want to, want to do this here, but what do you do with an old woman? You know, you're respectful, right? right? And so the, the film is, is really, um, I hope some of your listeners will want to, uh, look for it, to see how uncomfortable the, the soldiers felt. And that, of course, reminded me of also the encounter of, with Russian soldiers by Czechoslovaks mm -hmm. when the Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia in 1968, because the Czechoslovaks um, did the same thing with regard to the Russian soldiers. As they saw them coming in, they did some of the things you mentioned, for example, going up to the tanks. Well, uh, in, in Ukraine, um, there, there's a picture that came out of the conflict showing uh, a guy, one guy, 
his chest against the front of the tank, uh-huh. you know, trying to like push it back, obviously not trying to push it back, but, but, you know, with that mm-hmm. kind of gesture, hands up, you know, hands uh, 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 open. So it was mm-hmm. clear he wasn't being, he didn't have a Molotov cocktail in his hand and there he was. And, and the tank driver was backing up and, and in other cases, groups of unarmed people, uh, so occupying a bridge that the, the tanks were having trouble, um, uh, with off-road, you know, the, the, trying to trying to manage another way rather than hurt these these uh, unarmed civilian resistors, um, and that again reminded me of Czechoslovakia because there were a bunch of bridges uh, in Czechoslovakia that were blocked by unarmed civilians, Czechs and Slovaks. Um, another th- another similarity uh, that I was reminded of was turning the directional signs around. <laughs> So you'd see a military convoy from Russia heading completely off in the wrong direction because they were just reading the signs and doing what the signs said. Uh, so, so there are all kinds of lovely improvisation that can be done. The bottom line of which it's important that the resistors remember, the bottom line here is to demoralize the invaders. Mm-hmm. That will be a major successful objective if we're able to reach it. And why is that successful? Well, today, the Associated Press reported that in Ukraine, the military assault has been horribly bungled and is really, really, uh, uh, all the military experts are being quoted as saying, it's extraordinary how, how bungling and, and, and uh, terribly implemented this whole thing is. Well, that is the weakness of any invading army. If mm-hmm. they're conscripted soldiers, let's say mm-hmm. these are conscripts, right? Uh, at, at the lower levels where the implementation really takes place, these are conscripted people who have no wish to be there. And the, and so working on their morale can be very powerful. One of the things that happened in, in the Ukraine just now, just you know, a couple weeks ago, was uh, so Russian soldiers shooting themselves in the legs to give themselves wounds, taking them out of battle and taking them maybe, hopefully, they're they're hoping back home to a hospital to recover. Uh, other soldiers have been uh, taking off their uniforms and putting other clothes on that they've been able to find in somebody's apartment or something and deserting. There's been mm-hmm. d- ser- serious desertion going on. Mm-hmm. This is all great for the Ukrainian cause, as it was for the Czechoslovak cause. In fact, in Czechoslovakia, they were so effective, partly because they didn't do a military resistance in Czechoslovakia. A difference between those two was that the government of Czechoslovakia was in, in the hands of a dictator. I mean, Zelensky is obviously not a dictator in, in U- the Ukraine. But in, in, uh, in Czechoslovakia at the time, 1968, August 1968, he was basically a dictator. And so he could decide what to do. And as soon as he heard that the tanks were moving toward crossing the border into Czechoslovakia, he ordered the troops, his troops, uh, padlocked, (laughs) locked up in their barracks in order to prevent a military resistance. Because his calculation was, we're going to get horribly beaten up mm-hmm. if we do a military resistance. We're most likely going to lose because we're up against a much bigger power. And uh, but it will be a protracted, you know, bloody, horrible, horrible mess if we do that. So let's 
lock up the military and then uh, and then see see what else we can think of. Well, he, having been brought up in the Communist Party, had not been brought up with a, a, a Gandhian <laughs> a Gandhian playbook, right? He, right? he had not read my book, How We Win, or anything no, like that. Sadly. Right? No, definitely not, right? So he was not going to be the, the, the general for the nonviolent army. He was not going to be a Gandhi, right? But at least he knew, well, let's not, uh, like, you know, mess up the possibility. And so, and he expected personally to be taken to Moscow, arrested any minute, mm -hmm. taken to Moscow and shot. And uh, so what happened though, was because the military advance from Russia was so bogged down by all this nonviolent resistance, um, the soldiers started to melt like butter in the sun. And within three days, the Russian commanders had to start rotating soldiers out of Czechoslovakia back home and bringing in fresh soldiers with, you know, propaganda, uh, because the the uh, civilian resistance was so effective. And one of the, but one of my favorite things they did in Czechoslovakia, young lovers, you know, young young men and women who were lovers, would go, would walk out in front of the of the Russian soldiers, the invaders, and and uh, and make out <laughs> in front of them. <laughs> <laughs> and say to the say to the Russian soldiers, "Hey, Ivan, don't you wish you were home doing this? You know, <laughs> wouldn't you rather be home with, with your honey?" And you know, so, so they even brought you know elements of humor and uh, based fundamentally communicating with them on a human level and making it very much worth their while not to follow orders whenever they, there wasn't a commander there with a gun out saying, you will now do this, right? So, but lots and lots of orders, and this is what we're finding in the Ukraine also, according to these military experts in today's, uh, today's clipping, um, lot, even in the Ukraine, so many people in the military are non-cooperating with their orders or, or by being klutzy, mm -hmm. right? pretending they just can't figure this out. How do you get supply lines to work? Supply lines are complicated. If you don't, if you don't, if your heart's not in it, you're not going to do well, right? Um, mm -hmm. so, so it's that kind of thing that, that is defeating the Russian army and its objectives um, it, uh, along with the military resistance, which as I said, Gandhi would say, well, if you can't think of anything else, but what excites me about Ukraine and even more about Czechoslovakia because it was more thoroughly consistent uh, was that they were able to be innovative and to be creative and to, and, and what happened as a result was um, that instead of the military, the, the leader of Czechoslovakia, Dubček, Alexander Dubček, Dubček being shot, as he fully expected, he was taken back to Moscow, sat down at a negotiating table with the head of, of Russia, the Soviet Union, and they negotiated an agreement in which Dubchev gave some, the Soviets gave some, and Czechoslovakia was failed, failed in its then trajectory toward a liberal democracy, but was able to wait for the next opportunity that things would open up and then did go for a, a, a liberal democracy and a rejection of communist dictatorship. So what Dubček saved by that brilliant move of not mm -hmm. of locking up the military was he saved the economic the economy for one thing. I mean we're seeing in Ukraine every day what happens to a 
you know, what happens to an economy in this situation? Um, so he saved his economy, saved the civility. The neighborhoods are intact. You know, all the people were intact. There were previously established relationships. They could depend on each other. They weren't rushing toward Poland, right, to get out. They were there helping each other out and, and planning next opportunity we get. We're going to go for democracy. And that's what they did. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an amazing historical example. And, uh, you know, it's it's fascinating to me. We've got so many examples in history of nonviolent mm. uh, resistance. And um, even now, I mean, we've been talking about the nonviolent resistance by some of the Ukrainian. Of course, there's the courageous Ukrainian military fighters and to take nothing away from them they've been heroic that's right, uh, that's right. Um, and this other aspect that you're talking about you know the man standing in front of the the russian tank like right in front of it and it, <laughs> by the way what i flashed on when you said that george was our friend um david hartsoe in the civil rights movement when he went down standing up for the rights of african-americans to register and to vote. And he got threatened uh, when he was doing an action down in the South. And a guy was there, I think, with a knife at his throat and saying, you know, uh, you know, I'm going to kill you, you Yankee troublemaker. And, mm -hmm. uh, and David just looked at him with love and said, mm -hmm. well, you need to do what you need to do, brother, but I won't harm you. Mm -hmm. And the guy just dropped his knife and ran <laughs> away. <laughs> um, like, you know, that to me is like such a demonstration of the power of nonviolence. It's not in the weapon in your hands. It's in the love in your heart. That's right. That's and there's right. no more powerful love than that. And I think the brilliance in the nonviolent approach is that instead of making the cost of entry so high where the invading military gets hit with the defending military and there's mm -hmm. blood in the streets everywhere what it does is the the cost of entry is not so high because mm -hmm. the military invaders come in but the cost of occupation is unbearable and right. when you have the civilians unwilling to cooperate you will never have an invading force strong enough deep enough that's going to conquer the hearts and minds of the people who don't want you there and will change the street signs, will go on strike, will make the country come to a standstill. It makes a country ungovernable. Would you agree? Oh, I agree. And I think a good example of this is a contrasting approach is taken by Norway and Denmark when both were invaded by Germany during World War II, because Hitler very much wanted to dominate both of those countries, partly because they were uh, Nordic peoples. And it was Hitler's ideology that said, it's the Vikings who were the true <laughs> supermen, you know, male, you know, and that's what he really meant. He meant supermen. Right. And, uh, right. So, so if he, if Germany could, uh, could bring, a, bring over uh, to the Nazi way, the true Nazi way, in the roots of Vikings. Uh, you know, that was his. That was his fantasy, right? So German soldiers invaded both Denmark and Norway. So I think that's an interesting comparative case in, in terms of following up on what you 
a raising there because they made very different choices. So Norway did the military defense, which is, as you say, what we're all taught from when we're little, use violence, right? Okay, but the Danes did the Alexander Dubček model. The government of Denmark said, no, we're gonna be overcome. Then they'll trash our economy. They'll kill a lot of people. No, 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 we won't do that. So they uh, did not put up a military defense. So then watching, I've studied and interviewed both in Norway and in Denmark, hmm. the, um, as I actually got to live in Norway. So I had a lot of chance to interview people who were, hmm. who remembered these times. Um, I, so I learned a lot about the contrast between those two in the way things played out. And long story short, in Denmark, the re nonviolent resistance then put up by the people once occupied frustrated the Germans no end because the Germans wanted to harness the Danish economy to the war effort. The, Hitler wanted to invade Britain. He so much wanted to invade Britain. He needed more warships to do it successfully. The Danes were globally known for their shipbuilding expertise. So Hitler thought, great, the shipyards of Denmark will equip my fleet, you know, so I'll be able to invade. So it was great. Guess what? The, the, the Danish shipbuilders figured that out. <laughs> and the workers said, no way. But they decided to do the the klutz approach rather than the defiant approach, right? So they went to work each day, but they became the most klutzy shipbuilders in the world, <laughs> dropping, you know, dropping stuff into the water and, and ruining their own machinery and all this stuff. And it was so frustrating to the Germans. The Germans ended up having to tow some half-finished ships to Hamburg in Germany to finish them because they didn't even trust the Danes to be able to finish the ship. So it was it was brilliant. And there were multiple ways in which the Danes found to do this nonviolent resistance. And in, in one way, I think the story that's probably best known to most people is saving the Jews because one of mm -hmm. Hitler's objectives, of course, round up the, the Jewish uh, Danes and send them off to concentration camps. And now here's, here's an element people often forget, but it has to do with your story about David Hartso, mm -hmm. getting a heart connection, right? So there were the Danes uh, trying to stand up for their, their country, but also not threatening the Germans, which created a situation where they could get multiple leaks from the occupying power, multiple leaks. One of the leaks they got was next week, we're going to round up your Jews and take them to concentration camps. Valuable leak, right? So immediately that leak was reported to the underground. The underground immediately rounded up the, the Danish Jews themselves, put them on Danish fishing boats and took them to Sweden in safety. So almost all the Danish Jews were saved from the Holocaust. Again, compare with Norway. They didn't have that kind of rapport with the mm -hmm. invading force mm -hmm. because they'd been fighting them and killing you know, as many as they could. So they didn't get that leak. And the result was that um, more of a Norwegian, uh, even though Norwegian has, Norway has a common bar border with, with Sweden, so some Jews figured it out you know, and did get over the border safely, but a higher proportion of uh, Norwegian Jews were lost to the Holocaust because of that.
So the thing about comparing nonviolent resistance and violent resistance is we always have to figure out, well, what are the, you know, what are the multiple things that are going on in this situation? And how can you, uh, you know, maximize the advantages through nonviolent resistance? The other huge advantage the Danes had was when the Germans were finally uh, forced out by the outcome of the war, um, they had an intact economy and they could rapidly get back to, you know, back to uh, uh, dealing with poverty issues and so on and so on. The Norwegians were so beaten up in their economy during that uh, war against the invasion that when I got there, when I, find, when I arrived in Norway in 1959, they were mm. still rationing, mm. still rationing that's 14 years after 1945 i remember i'm so old i remember rationing during world war ii i can actually remember that i was a boy you know and, and people were concerned about how to get the right kinds of food and so on um and rationing was a reality in the u.s but the u.s finished rationing in 45 46 the latest and there was norway 59 1959 still rationing um so that Again, it says a lot when you have a comparison you can make, you know, of similar situations, but a different choice of military resistance versus nonviolent resistance. Yeah, I, well, as you're talking and thinking like, uh, it's good for the Danes, too bad for the Norwegians, you know, all those years of recovering. And I'm just looking at these pictures of Ukraine now. I mean, it's going to take it's going to take at least a generation to recover from the destruction rot. Uh, uh, so it's just, you know, a terrible situation. But there are people working on the nonviolent uh, resistance in Ukraine. Have you heard of this group called Beautiful Trouble? Um, yes. Apparently, they've got a, a toolkit for people involved in nonviolent resistance, and they're publishing it both in Ukrainian and in Russian <laughs> to <laughs> you know, support the Ukrainians and undermine the Russian military. So uh, what do you think of the beautiful trouble work? Oh, it's terrific. It's absolutely excellent. Because as you say, we're not necessarily brought up thinking in this way, right? Mm -hmm. in, in elementary school, I never hear, heard a word of it. Uh, in a high school, I never heard of it. In fact, I think only in college, and that was, I don't think it was from a professor that I heard that there was anything else you could do besides violence. And so, um, so for a lot of Americans, we've been brainwashed. And in a way, it's to the advantage of governmental figures who want us to support a huge military, right? right. <laughs> and it's a, what Dwight Eisenhower called the military industrial complex, enormously uh, profits uh, mm -hmm. from our ignorance. Um, but the beautiful thing about Beautiful Trouble is that they are, even at this late date, not giving up, you know, but they're saying, hey, there's an alternative, there's an alternative, get creative, uh, find, find ways of foiling uh, and, and even, you know, ma making Putin sorry that he did this. Right, yeah. Right, and there's mounting evidence that, uh, that, that, that he's getting, getting the message <laughs> from... Right. From the from the sheer uh, you know incompetency of his of, of military that doesn't want to be there, right? Exactly, and um, 
we can expect a uh, you know problems not only with the sanctions right now for the Russian economy, but you can imagine the sales of Russian weaponry is probably going to decline dramatically. Like the Indians and the Pakistani, like who wants to buy weaponry from the Russians now? So, right. um, but let's talk about Russia for a minute because that's okay. another area where there is nonviolent resistance going oh, yes. on in Russia, and even though. Putin put in this rule, if you challenge anything the government says or does, you're thrown into jail for 15 years. Mm -hmm. In spite of that, the Russian people are rising up. Um, there's been uh, 100,000 Russians that I know of signing petitions to end the war, people participating in, in peace, protesting the war, um, there have been about 15,000 Russians arrested because they're speaking out against the Russian invasion. Now, can you um, uh, talk a little bit more about it? I know you've talked about some of the soldiers who are deserting, but like, where else do you see nonviolent resistance in Russia? You've been keeping better track of that than I have. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because I read your website, Waging Nonviolence. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. I'm glad you, you just rattled those things right off. That's, that's really great. Yeah, yeah. I, I think um, it's, it's really hurting Russia. It's really hurting Russia because of all this alienation. Um, Masha Gessen wrote in The New Yorker about the number of really gifted members of the intelligentsia who've moved out already. That's right. Moved out to other, other countries. So other countries are gaining this, you know, the riches of their intelligence and, and, and uh, initiative and vigor, and Russia is losing it. So mm -hmm. the, 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 there's a real price being paid, very strong price being paid for this. Yeah, that, that's a big brain drain happening in Russia. The people who like, uh, you know, I'm out of here. This, he's gone too far this time. And right. um, I've actually, I, I just earlier today, by the way, talked to a friend who's married to a Ukrainian and deeply involved with the Ukrainians. Oh. And I asked him for his take on the situation. He actually thinks Russia within 30 to 60 days, Russia will be beaten and will leave the Ukraine. Hmm. That their military offensive has been so poorly executed and badly disrupted and beaten mm -hmm. by the, you know, the spirit of people defending their homeland is much stronger than much the invaders. Stronger. I mean, think about our own country. That's how people in, in America beat, we beat the biggest um, military force known to the world, the British Empire. That's right. And this ragtag group of farmers That's in right. New England and the South here uh, in America just like beat the pants off of these guys and sent them hightailing at home. <laughs> Why? Because this is our land and we didn't want to be ruled by people 3,000 miles away who didn't know anything about our situation. So That's there's right. always that power. And we faced it on the other side in Vietnam. Uh, Very strongly so, consider yeah. that. I was able to be in Vietnam during the war and uh, got to know one of the Vietnamese leaders of the nonviolent resistance, the head of the Unified Buddhist Church, which was called also the Third Force. Um, who was constantly mobilizing against U.S. presence. Uh, there were monks who were even willing and nuns willing to burn themselves to death as a signal 
to the you know to devoted lay people in the buddhist church um whoa it's this serious we have to resist so strongly the uh, the american presence and the the you know and they're backing the our dictatorship which we don't want um and and of course the uh, and and while on the one hand i was able to be over there engaged in that i was a, i was a very connected to the american scene in which there were more and more american soldiers who were experiencing what Russian soldiers are experiencing right now. Mm -hmm. Why are we in Vietnam? They don't want us there. They, they, we, we're, we're, we're totally invading them. And who, who even voted for this? You know, like who, when, when, when did the American people get excited about Vietnam and say, let's, let's devote X amount of treasure and lots and lots of American lives to uh, to interfere in whatever is going on in a country actually we never heard of. Um, and it was just such a, it was a kind of Putin and, you know, Putin on our side, it was a government that decided to go ahead and do this without uh, democratic support and with the increasing opposition of the uh, U.S. military itself. Mm -hmm. So I think any, anyone who was through the Vietnam War experience, I guess there aren't so many people anymore, but some will at least have heard of um, how, how a disaffected military then refusing to follow orders, refusing to follow through when it comes to the foxhole and so on and so on can make it impossible to win, even if it calls itself the superpower that can beat up any people that it wants to. Right. Yeah. Well, um, you know, on this theme of nonviolence, it's, it's it's not just the Ukrainians and the Russians, but now the United States is actually engaging in some very serious nonviolent actions. That's why we're not going in with boots on the ground and fighting directly the Russians in Ukraine. But what we are doing is mobilizing the world community to put these economic sanctions onto Russia, which are really severe. I think they're the most severe sanctions ever um, given to any country. Uh, mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we, you know, it's not being labeled as a nonviolent tactic. Um, but it is. But it is. It is, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I was friends with Gene Sharp. He was one of my mentors and he's the founder of the scholarly field of nonviolent struggle, has done so much historic work himself. And he told me, one of the things that would be fun, George, would be to find an older case than the oldest case that I've found, which was in ancient Rome, in the, the, the patricians were really messing with the plebeians, you know, grinding them into the, and the plebeians decided, okay, at, at harvest time, let's just leave with, with our, leaving behind our demands. So they went out and camped on a nearby mountain and said, we'll come back when you accede to our demands. And the patricians realized they were gonna lose these valuable crops, said, okay, 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 come back, we'll be decent. And, uh, that <laughs> and so, um, uh, so I challenged my, stu my students at Swarthmore, um, can you find an older case than 
than jeans because that's the oldest case. And he would like to go back even more. And one of my students walked in. He was a first year student too. And he was so proud. He had this smile from ear to ear. I said, what's going on? And he said, I found an older case than Gene Sharp did. <laughs> and guess what? It was in Egypt and it was a Pharaoh a uh, situation where the pharaoh was buried was uh having a, his tomb built you know as as was the fashion doing a pyramid or some kind of elaborate tomb thing and the worker the workers were being uh starved really i mean they were they were free they, they weren't slaves but they were being uh paid very very poorly and overworked and they thought huh why don't we just stop and say the pharaoh can build his own tomb so they stopped. They went on strike, right? Mm -hmm. So economic tools, which is what mm -hmm. the U.S. is doing now in Ukraine and leading other nations to do, um, economic. Wow, I love paying attention to the economy. And now the oldest case we can find in nonviolent struggle in the world was an economic, um, using an economic tool. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, uh, you're better at history than I am, but the, the one that the ancient example of a nonviolent tactic that comes to my mind is Lysistrata. Um, oh, uh, yes. Like how far back does Lysistrata go? That's pretty early on. That's really old. And I don't know. I, I never looked up dates on that. But yes, <laughs> how about that? Refusing to do what she's expected to do. Right. It's, it's actually very human, isn't it? Right. With Withholding. When you're being mistreated, just withhold cooperation. I, I don't know if you're a mom, but I'm a dad. And mm -hmm. I remember little children of mine when I was trying to get a diaper on and they didn't want to be diapered, stiffening up, you know, right? Or at another occasion mm -hmm. when I needed them to cooperate, going limp. Right. They didn't and have to be trained. <laughs> you do not need training. This is something that's very human nature very very human nature if you want to resist to figure out what they want you to do and don't do it however though I, I i have to as somebody who was a trainer during the civil rights movement i also have to say to give it as fair due that mm -hmm. i don't think the civil our um, fantastic american civil rights movement could have successfully gone into mississippi ku klux klan territory right and survived if it had not been for the training because it was so scary we're talking about torture right, right? talking about torture and death right and that's what they faced and i don't think they could have done it if there hadn't been a tremendous lot of nonviolence training so then when i look at cases like of of, of what we're talking about now civilian-based defense of say Czechoslovakia, ukraine um and uh you know and uh, I, there are other cases I could bring up, but Norway, Sweden, uh, Denmark. Um, what I notice about those cases of nonviolent struggle is that there was not training in those cases. So people were improvising, but they hadn't been trained. And right now, the, the examples you give so beautifully about Russia and, and we've been sharing about Ukraine, those are untrained people who are improvising, right? Well, now, put going into a combat untrained i mean what what military commander would want to take his soldiers into combat without training 
he'd say, that's crazy. I have to train my people for combat, right? Well, right. it's, it's while we can get away with it sometimes nonviolently uh, by doing it without training, whoa, does it make a difference if we train? And for that reason, I ran into at the Oxford University at a major conference on this subject, uh, the guy who at that time, Sir Basil Littlehart, uh, he was considered the foremost uh, military uh, scholar and strategist in the world at that moment. And I was eager to talk to him. And he said, you know what I did after World War II? And I said, no. And he said, the Danish government called me up and said, Come to, come to Copenhagen, we want to pick your brains about what kind of defense uh, strategy we could choose post-World War II. You know, because we're mm. this tiny country, we were occupied during World War II, now we have to figure out what to do, we want your good thinking. So he said, okay, I'll go. So he went to Copenhagen, sat down with them. His conclusion after listening to them and described their situation, he said, oh, I would definitely adopt a policy of nonviolent resistance, and I would train every Dane for offering nonviolent resistance, and I would develop a strategy. How are you going to make that resistance economically powerful? How are you going to make it politically powerful? How are you going to make it culturally powerful? And he said, that's what I would do as a military strategist. That's my advice. <laughs> that's great advice. And, and did they do it? No. They oh joined God, NATO instead. I know they joined NATO instead. Oh, um, well, they could do both, right? Join NATO, but still, still do the civilian-based defense. They could do both. They could do both. And there are people in the U.S. military who Gene Sharp was able to reach who, uh, in fact, I had a, a, an extraordinary experience a few summers ago. At Valley Forge, there's a military training out outfit who called me up and said, we'd like you to come out and give a lecture on the Vietnam War from the point of view of a, of a peacenik, you know, of a, of a, mm -hmm. a peace, peace warrior. And I said, fine. So I went out and lectured this, this large room full of uh, military people, uh, officers, they were all officers, and um, in uniform and so on. We had a great discussion. They were very open very open. And then afterward, a, a guy came over, I, I hung out so people could come over and talk to me. And a guy came over and said, by the way, I'm a professor in one of the military academies. I won't say which one right now, but I'm a professor in one of those academies. And I just want you to know that even though I mostly am teaching in my courses military strategy, I always include a unit on nonviolent strategy, because I want my military officers to know about that option. Fantastic. Yeah. So there are some people who are willing to think strategically enough so that they don't just foreclose the possibility of nonviolence. Right. And even if you're not philosophically and morally committed to nonviolence totally, mm -hmm. like Gandhi was, you still need to think of it as, as a potential strategy that could be far more effective, perhaps in some cases, than military. In fact, I remember reading in your book about how we win, mm. um, you cited in there a study of 20th century movements that showed the movements that are nonviolent have been twice as successful as those that are violent. That's right. And, and you tend, if you, once you move into violence, it's very polarized, pick sides one against the other. 
But when you do nonviolence as your practice, then you're more likely to engender more support by more people. That's right. The political scientists who did that study were very statistically oriented. And so they were very hard nosed. <laughs> and they were themselves surprised to learn that a movement yeah. that chose nonviolence doubled its chances of success compared with the bottom of them. Fantastic. Yeah. So, and you've done many amazing, wonderful things in your life, George. And one of the best is your, I think, your involvement in this collection of case studies of nonviolent campaigns around the globe and throughout history. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the Global Nonviolent Action Database? Oh, I'm so happy to, because your listeners can just go online and find it easily. Just Global Nonviolent Action Database, it'll come right up. Um, we have over a thousand, I think it's approaching 1400 cases now. Uh, all of them have a narrative, all of them have a story. So you can read the story. Uh, they're, they're also though, because it's a database, you can go after particular methods that you might be interested in. For example, what's the power of a strike? For example, if you're interested in the economic side of things or boycott. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe you're interested in, well, you know, there have been people sitting in in my city, uh, my town lately. Um, I'm wondering about sit-ins. So you could just type in sit-ins and then you get a whole bunch of cases that have used sit-ins. So it's really a fun kind of database to play with in terms of, of following your own interests. Uh, and people will be able to read about the Czechoslovak case that I referred to. They can read about the Danish case. And, um, and there were specific sub uh, cases, there were cases of smaller units of Norwegians effectively defending themselves nonviolently against the German occupation. For example, the uh, school teachers banded together. I got to teach in a Norwegian school, so I was able to interview on that. And we have the case in there of Norwegian teachers uh, 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 re refusing to allow the Nazification of the, of the Norwegian schools nonviolently. They nonviolently refu refused to do it, um, even though Ger the German occupation in Norway was so intense, it was one soldier per 10 Norwegians. If you can imagine that ratio, mm -hmm. imagine in the U.S. if there were, <laughs> for every 10 of us, there, were, there was an enemy soldier. <laughs> and the, the Norwegian teachers stood up to that and won. Uh, mm -hmm. And the church, there was also a wish to, um, to uh, force the church to kneel, you know, to Hitler. And the church successfully and nonviolently uh, resisted. So you can read about the Nor that, those Norway cases. Um, so you might have a country in the world, there are almost 200 countries represented. So nonviolence is not, you know, just a weird thing that Europeans do or something. It's very, very, very widespread. Lots of Latin American cases, Asian cases, lots of Asian, African cases. And so you can uh, hunt for a country that you're particularly interested in and, and uh, read the cases in the, those, those countries. It's, it's tremendous fun. And each case, this was the hardest part for each student, was, has to be rated to its degree of success. Mm -hmm. wow. Did it completely succeed? Did it partly succeed? Did it utterly fail? And so on and so on. Yeah. So, so that's fun too, just to then start to imagine, well, what if they had tried that and that and that? Would then the end of succeeded better, you know? Or, wow, that one gets a 10. We, we scored people <laughs> one to 10, right? So the 10s, wow, what makes them so great? <laughs> 
<laughs> so successful. So it's a tremendous fun uh, database to play with for the you know people just coming online and finding it. <laughs> well, I'd much rather see the ranking of one to ten on the successful nonviolent campaigns than the Miss America pageants. <laughs> now that's putting ranking to good use. <laughs> uh, that's putting it to good use. <laughs> and you know, it's so impressive that really you say two hundred countries. That's virtually every country in the world has some oh, experience. Yeah. Almost every country with nonviolent. And you mentioned Gandhi, who people revere now as uh, the like living emblem of nonviolent. My understanding is Gandhi was inspired by an American, by Henry David Thoreau, and his commitment to nonviolence, his willingness to go to jail to protest the U.S. war in Mexico, I think it was, and then That's in great. turn, Gandhi inspiring Martin Luther King, who was, you know, the the leader of the nonviolent movement in the country. So it's fascinating how we can cross-fertilize and co-inspire each other. Um, and your database just is a phenomenal resource for everyone in the world to be able to access freely these stories of how to do successful nonviolent uh, non-cooperation or protest. So thank you for creating that jewel of a resource for humanity. For me, it was such fun. I remember a Romanian student walking in. Swarthmore College has a lot of foreign students, international students. And this Romanian student walked in and first day of class and said, uh, Professor, I ve I'm very interested in this subject, but I just have to say I'm a little sad because my people, the Romanian people, don't do this kind of thing. And I said, oh, well, we'll see. She ended up writing case after case after case. After case. <laughs> <laughs> so probably if you look up Romania, you'll find they're all by the same, you know, excited student <laughs> who had a breakthrough in understanding because Romanian history teachers are a lot like American history teachers, which is they tend to get into the blood and gore, right? Right. Well, that's, you know, it dominates the news. It dominates our history. Yeah. The story of mankind is often the story of the wars and the bloodshed and then the women picking up the pieces and trying to recreate the families and communities and, and going on. Um, well, I want to ask you, because I'm deeply concerned now in our own country here in the United States about the right wing militias that are forming. We saw on January 6th, the storming of the Capitol. Thank God they didn't have more weapons in with them when they went into the Capitol, um, but they could come back again and this time with weapons and also do it at state capitals. We know militias are training now uh, to use weaponry if their candidates don't win. Mm -hmm. So um, how do we prepare? I mean, I, I want to, uh, I want to protect our democracy, protect our system of government from those who would try to take it by force and overturn election results. Um, but if they're showing up with guns and you know machine guns, all kinds of weapons to overturn the elections, what can we who are committed to nonviolence do to prepare now to protect against that intended onslaught that's coming? There are a couple of things we can do. Number one is to learn more about the civil rights movement because they're going into Mississippi and even Alabama, you know, armed camps, right? Armed camps full of people who wanted dead people, wanted black people to be dead. And they not only survived, they won. 
So there are tremendous lot of lessons that we can learn from the civil rights movement about how to deal in a hostile environment. Mm -hmm. And then number two, um, the thing we can do is we can choose we can develop a movement in our locality, whatever lo our locality is, but this will be especially useful for rural people, I think. F uh, choose, um, choose something that needs defense. For example, a rural hospital that's on shaky grounds financially, right? And there's so many hospitals now that because we have a terrible healthcare system, <laughs> in my view. Um, uh, it, more and more hospitals closing down or closing their maternity wards. A lot of rural hospitals are closing their maternity wards first before the, the whole thing is padlocked. Um, uh, so choose things like that, which you know will speak to the interests of those who are attracted to the militias, right? What right-wing militia member doesn't have somebody in their family who's struggling with some kind of physical ailment or issue, right? Mm -hmm. Or a, a, a woman who's pregnant uh, would love to be able to give birth in a hospital, right? Uh, or, and so on and so on. There are just tremendous um, inequalities in our society that hit right-wing working-class uh, militia members and so on. Very, very hard. Mm -hmm. We have a common interest with them. We all deserve an excellent healthcare system. Uh, we spend much more for our healthcare system than the, the, the Nordics do. And we get much less for it. They get free medical care for all. We get, uh, on, on the charts, I've looked into the statistics, we have a higher number of people who die who didn't need to because of lack of medical care than any other of the OECD countries. It's just an international scandal. Okay, so that's hugely an interest that we have with them. Another uh, issue, anything that has to do with retirement, right? There are so many working class people who face tremendous poverty when they retire. And that doesn't need to be. So what we could do is organize movements that use nonviolent struggle, um, you know, like surround the hospital. I don't know, we can come up with wonderful tactics um, that, uh, or, or go into CVS and don't leave until, <laughs> until people who need their medicine can get it. Uh, just all kinds of things we could try that will, I think, um, depolarize the situation because more and more right-wing, at least working class people will see, oh, they're fighting for us. Mm-hmm. And I've always felt in my whole life, I was brought up working class. I was brought up blue collar. I was mm -hmm. not expected to go to college. I was the first in my entire family tree to go to college. Um, so I identify very strongly with working class people and I can see why they are pissed. And I can see why they, uh, sorry if I used a bad word for you, but anyway, <laughs> and I can see why that, that anger uh, might easily then be channeled in the wrong direction. I would mm -hmm. say, Affirm the anger. You're mad? Good. <laughs> because there's a lot to be mad about. Mm -hmm. So let's be mad together. And let's be mad together about the closing of this rural hospital or you know, this or that or the other thing that you can, you can find. And it'll be easy, I guess, in almost every place in the country to find 
uh, issues of common concern and then go after it, go after it like mad. And you get to know the people you struggle with. You get to spend time in jail with them or whatever. I've met some wonderful people in jail. Um, and, uh, and, and the collaboration can grow and they'll say, well, huh, but I just, you know, I heard on Fox News, blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, well, that's a crock of shit. <laughs> and you know that yeah, you don't have to you know there's, there's, next time you hear something like that give me a call here's my phone number you know we can talk about it and build those relationships and that's what was much harder to do for the civil rights movement because the color difference made it harder for black people to reach out to white racists right members of the Ku Klux Klan and be able to establish successful communication because the white people were so you know their eyes tended to be closed to that but even then there are remarkable cases where well for one thing even despite that handicap obviously the civil rights movement was strongest in the south it was stronger in the south than the north they won more victories in the south than in the north despite that menace of constant uh, you know a chance of getting hurt or killed but the other point I wanted to make about that, let's see, is that, oh, Andrew Young, uh, one of the right-hand uh, people for Dr. King, when he was still a pastor of a rural church, got word from somebody, uh, he was Black pastor in Black church, um, somebody said, hey, Andy, uh, I hear the Ku Klux Klan around here, which has been not very together and kind of, you know, demoralized, uh, is excited because we're we're planning demonstrations and stuff. So they are having a big bonfire tonight and rallying their people in sheets and stuff, and you know, getting ready to go on the war war path against us. Um, so I just wanted you to know that. And then he said, oh, great. Thanks for telling me. I'll rally my church members. So he got a bunch of his church members to go to that spot. <laughs> These are Black people going to a Klan rally deep in a clearing of woods in Southwest Georgia mm. with no police around, right? <laughs> and, the, and the Ku Klux Klan members were so startled. I mean, most of them were weaponed up. You know, but seeing this, they were just completely, blah, blah, blah. I mean, they, they didn't know what to make of it. And and the, the Black people had been instructed by Andy, who had been a, a trainer. He was a trainer also. Mm -hmm. So he had trained them. Now, when we get there, disperse in twos and at most threes and talk to people. And that's mm -hmm. what they did. So they just were fanning out and talking to all these white-robed guys. <laughs> <laughs> and and it worked it worked wow it defanged the local mm -hmm. Ku Klux Klan so that the movement could go ahead and win uh so there's stuff like that that we can learn from the civil rights movement I I can hardly wait till we up our learning curve in that way fantastic and uh what do you think is the best source for that I like your book how how we, how win. we win is the easiest to get yeah it's a paperback yeah. it's got a lot of it's really yeah I, I really made sure it would have examples and stories that would be inspiring. Yeah, very inspiring, very thoughtful. I encourage our listeners to, to read that book, you know, How We Win by George Lakey. Um, I'm also thinking ways our listeners can learn more about what you're up to. And we know we've got, of course, we talked about the Global Nonviolent Action Database. You can find mm -hmm. that for free online. And you're writing regularly now for the Waging 
nonviolence.org. So I think there's a lot of ways. If there's anything else you want to mention, I know you have an upcoming memoir, which I want to have you back when your memoir is done. Oh, so, that's exciting. That's exciting. Well, a full-length, uh, feature-length um, documentary film is being made now of my, my work, uh, my life and work. So that'll be available, I think, in the winter. Uh, so we'll try to push that around a lot. And hopefully people can ask their local PBS station to uh, to play it on because it's being made for for uh, you know public TV as well. Yep, and that's all the time we have. George Leakey, thank you for being with us on All Together Now. Fun to be with you.